riding with a group of buddies can be a lot of fun. It's great to share the experience, enjoy the company, and um, just enjoy the camaraderie of like-minded people, be it a day trip, a weekend trip, or, or even longer. But as an organizer, if you're the one organizing the group, it's a lot of work and responsibility. And today we have two very experienced motorcycle guides that are going to share a few stories of misadventures and what they learned from those experiences. As well, we have a, an expert on group dynamics, and he has some ideas for helping us choose a travel partner or maybe some ideas that will help us with traveling with a group and understanding group dynamics. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Before we get started, I want to thank these fine companies that helped get this episode out today. Best Rest Products is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters, cyclepump.com. Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter. It's free, maxbmw.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Pavey. My name is Barack Nagan. I'm uh, currently living in Albuquerque, New Mexico, originally from Israel. I own a small uh, photography business. By profession, I'm a photographer, videographer, video editor. And uh, I have a side gig where I uh, lead tours for motor discovery, uh, motorcycle tours. Barack, welcome back. Great to have you on the show again. Thank you. It's great to be back. We're talking about um, we're talking about uh, dealing with groups and and group dynamics in particular. And, and I know you had a, a tour that you told me a little bit about that you did. Um, was it Mexico? Yeah, it was in Mexico in the Copper Canyon region. Right. So, so what is that tour to begin with? And just describe, you know, the number of people, etc. Mm-hmm. Well, this tour uh, w- once in a while, Motor Discovery comes out with with uh, what's called a recon tour. And that's a tour that the company is building uh, to possibly be a tour in the future. And initially, what we try to do is, is just send a whole bunch of staff on the tour and check the locations and the routing and all that. But what we do is we open it up to guests. So these are people who would say, yeah, I'm sure I want to go on a recon tour. Um, and they're, they're more open to uh, the adventure part of the ride and the unknown and, and they're open to schedule changes and things like that. And so this particular tour, this was about 10 years ago. And this particular tour 
was to connect the Copper Canyon region, which we ride in uh, a whole lot. I've been doing that for decades. And connecting the Copper Canyon mountainous region with the Sea of Cortez. And for many years, there were always people were always looking of a straightforward way to connect the two because you have to go through the mountains and it's a long distance and it's a very remote uh, area of Mexico. And this was kind of in the middle um, of the uh, of the drug wars, which uh, you know the 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 hot spots kind of move around and they still are moving around. But that was the premise of the tour. It would it was a tour that started in the Copper Canyon region, and then the idea was to uh, find our way down to the Sea of Cortez. And touch the the Pacific, and then turn around and uh, ride back on a slightly different route. And so we had about uh, ten guests who were riding that tour, and we were four staff, two of which were uh, local. So we had a, um, a local Mexican guide who knew the area very well, and he was driving the support vehicle uh, in the back of the group. And we had a, a local Mexican guide who was also uh, serving as the as the lead. Uh, writer um, who also knew the area and we were leaning on him to kind of navigate us through this uh, this area. So you mentioned that um, that is an exploratory trip, which is not unusual. I mean, in the adventure uh, tourism industry, there's a lot of that goes on. Now, but are the people that come out on this, are they first timers or are they some repeat customers or all repeat customers? It's usually a mix. I would say that um, overall, this group was more on the experience level. So they were all pretty good riders. And I believe most of them had traveled abroad before this tour. Does the company vet them in advance? Like Because this is an exploratory trip, obviously the, the, the pressures are higher, the demand is, is greater on the riders. Um, is that part of the vetting process? Yeah. So the, the main thing is that we try to, to set expectations. So we tell them, look, this is a tour we don't know we don't know the route. We, you know, we, meaning the motor discovery staff, has never ridden the routes, and the it, it could be pretty rough. And then, in, in in parallel to that, we try to get a good sense of what people's experience um, level is riding, and what kind of bikes they ride, and um, you know what what their what their normal mode of of travel is, and if they feel comfortable going on a tour like this. So there is a there is a discussion going on ahead of time. And so it's usually left to, you know, it's very rare that we'll say, look, you don't, you don't sound like the, you know, the, 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 it doesn't sound like this trip is good for you. And um, we usually let the, the guests decide whether or not that's something that they want to do. Well, this, this trip in particular, can, can you set this up and just uh, give us a, a description of sort of what it looks like that day, that morning, I think it was a morning you pulled away. Yeah. So this is, we, we're already uh, two or three days into into the trip and uh, whoever's familiar with the Copper Canyon area, uh, Batopilas is the little village that everybody uh, wants to get to. It's at the bottom of one of the canyons in the, in the region. And that particular day, uh, that ride was going to take us, I believe the distance wasn't huge. It was maybe a hundred miles. Uh, and it was going to take us on a, a lesser known route to another little village, which is well known, which is Urique. Um, today there's a relatively easy mountain pass that you can go over and, and do connect between the two pretty easily. But at, back at, at the time, uh, it wasn't very straightforward and we were going to take this route that, um, I, I had never ridden. So all these, I had ridden to Batopilas many times, but I had never ridden beyond. So this was probably the third day into the tour and we were gonna, the destination was Urique. 
And it, it was, um, it, this was, you know, one of those days where if anything could go wrong, it would. <laughs> and <laughs> until, until, until things stopped going wrong, but there were a lot of things that happened that day, um, that were, uh, cumulative just, just to kind of set the stage. Um, I, I was, uh, I was kind of a floating in the group. I usually kind of rode at the back end of the group and the support vehicle was behind me. Uh, and I would follow the group around and, you know, help with, with any bikes that had to be, or, or riders that had to be helped. And th- we had one, um, one ironclad rule was we, we do not ride at night in this part of Mexico. Uh, and, and we always stick to the main trails, you know, never go off the, off of the main trails that connect the, the, the villages. So that was kind of, that always was in the back of our mind. Um, that morning, there were there were a few things that caused uh, us to to leave um, with a delay. There was uh, one guest that was, um, you know, had to get his his GoPro or his or his motorcycle mounted camera set up. So there was a little delay there. Uh, breakfast lasted a little longer than uh, than we would have liked. And then uh, in Batopilas, the gas station was basically a little pump out of a barrel that we had to line up and and you know put gas in one after the other. So that took time. And then we realized one of the guests' bike had a gas leak. So we had to deal with that. And that was, I think we ended up uh, like doing some kind of a, an epoxy patch on the, on the gas tank. And so even we hadn't even left Batopilas and it was already like 10 in the morning, which was way, that was at least two hours later than what we had wanted to leave. And then I gather this is because you, you figure it's going to take you a certain amount of time to make the pass and then get to where you're going to stay for the next night. Yeah, and we always wanted to leave a you know a margin of error for for exactly things like this to happen because you know you don't you never plan on these tours and you know even when you're you're riding on your own you're never you never plan to ride maxed out the whole day, you know you you plan to ride I don't know sixty percent of the day and you leave forty percent for for buffer for all these things that are you know part of uh, adventure riding all of the unexpected things that that happen on the way. Mm-hmm. But when that happens first thing in the morning, that takes your buffer away first thing before you've even left. Yeah. So we're already left with a smaller buffer. And so um, so we head out of Atopilas. And the first thing we encounter is a, is a big climb over uh, a mountain range. And that climb is, is pretty rough. And we have a few, a few people dropping bikes. And so we're, we're spending time uh, picking up bikes and getting people over this, this pass. And then um, we drop down the other side of this pass to uh, to a huge river that was <laughs> probably more more swollen than what we what, what we had expected, and so we had to kind of crisscross this river on multiple uh, multiple times. Um, and one of the one of the crossings was uh, so deep that uh, we had uh, one of the guests drop his bike in the water. And the bike literally just uh, submerged, and he didn't—he didn't have time to to uh, to kill the engine before it went under. So um, that that little KTM took a, a big gulp of water. Mm-hmm. Um, as describe it went the under. crossing in a little more detail. Mm. So it, it was interesting because there some some crossings were pretty traditional, meaning you're you're riding on the road, and it's obvious where the cars have gone down into this uh, riverbed because uh, you see the tracks. And the crossing is pretty straightforward, and you're crossing like at a, at a right angle to the to the river. Uh, I remember the first crossing actually took me by surprise because um, I was at the very end, and the group had had already gone gone through. 
uh, at the time, I think I was riding a, a little DRZ 400. And, um, and, and when I crossed, this was the first time I had crossed the river where the, the water was like coming over my knees, like from the, just mm-hmm. from this, this, the wake that it was creating was coming over the, my knees and, and my, my bike kind of sputtered, but I did manage to, to get across. So that's, that's how deep they were. They were definitely in a couple feet. And then other crossings were, uh, you kind of ride, uh, in the river. So the banks were steep. So you're riding on the, uh, along one side of the river and, you know, for maybe, you know, 200 yards in relatively shallow water. And then you make a, you know, a hard turn and you cross the river. And then just one of them, I guess, was, um, you know, there, there may have been a submerged rock or something that caught one of the guests off guard and, and uh, he dropped the bike. And so um, at that point, uh, we, we tried to get his, his bike to run. We, we spent a lot of time trying to do that, you know, and you know, hindsight is perfect, you know, looking back, you know, why do we spend so much time? But the answer to that is when you have, you've got paying, paying guests who go on this adventure, you want to do everything you possibly can so that they ride on this tour. To get them back in the game again. Otherwise he's stuck. Yeah. And so it turned out he had water in, in, in the motor and his oil was milky. And so we, we did a, we basically did a little oil change right there. And, uh, even then we couldn't get his bike to run. And so, so then we made a decision, okay, we're, we're just gonna, we're gonna load the bike up in the, in the support vehicle. But, you know, around that time, so it's, we've probably gone out of the, let's say a hundred miles that we're supposed to go. We've maybe gone 20 and it's, and it's, and it's lunchtime. So we're, we're looking at, you know, early afternoon and I was, I was starting to get very worried that we were not going to make our destination um, uh, without, without riding at night. And that, of course, was our, our biggest concern. And so I kind of organized a, a little uh, staff powwow away from the group where the, the proposition was that, look, it's, it seems very unlikely uh, we're going to not spill over into the night. Um, and it, it makes sense to, to turn back. So we've already ridden what we, we are, the, the ride back to Batopilas is unknown. Um, and we don't really have a, we don't have a buffer anymore. So that was that, that I had very strong opinions about, uh, whether or not it was a good idea to, to continue. Um, unfortunately it wasn't my decision to make. And, and the, the lead, the lead guide who had knowledge of the area, was, was, you know, he said, there's, I'm, I'm, you know, positive from now on, it's going to be a breeze. I know the way it's all really good roads. There's no more, uh, river crossings and, uh, we can make, uh, we may be riding a little bit at night, but it'll be, it'll be fine. Um, and so the, the decision was made to, to push on and, uh, and, and even, even then the, uh, the delays did not cease to happen. So, we we had there's this big mining operation in the area that we had to cross and we had to cross it with uh they they had to accompany us through the mining operation so there was another delay there and then one of the one of the most significant events that happened was um we were and it seemed like we had we were kind of picking up the pace which as a result of all these delays uh is is what happened and and that's a really bad thing if you're hurrying now 
because the because of delays, that's just another recipe for disaster. And so the next thing that happened is that we we basically breezed by a major intersection and took the wrong turn. So it was like the big uh, Y intersection and the lead uh, motorcycle took a left and everybody, the entire group followed him. And I was I was in the sweep uh, in the sweep position. And the support vehicle was was behind us, but the support vehicle, like I said, was driven by a local who who was very familiar with the area. And uh, after about 10, 15 minutes of us, you know, flying down this um, this road, I see that the group has turned around because now everybody's riding in the opposite direction, and everybody's signaling, "Turn around, turn around." And I said, oh, "Okay," and so uh, everybody goes by, and I, I turn around, and I'm following the group. Uh, the opposite direction. And I see we get back to that intersection and now we're turning on a different direction. <laughs> and I thought to myself, Oh no, <laughs> now the support vehicle is in front of us. <laughs> and that's not, that's not very good. Mm, no, I see. And, so they're going on there. They're, they think they're still behind the group likely. Yeah. So there, so, and, and we didn't, there were no communications. I mean, it's so, it's so remote. There's no, there's no cell phone reception or anything like that. And I was sure that the support vehicle was flying to try to catch up with the group. And so we, we found ourselves behind the support vehicle. Um, so what does that mean, the, the support vehicles ahead of you? How, how dire is that? Well, a couple of things. First of all, uh, we don't have a backup, meaning we don't have, if somebody breaks down, then we, we don't have the support vehicle to pick up the bike, to pick up the rider. Uh, we don't have um, any of our uh, warm gear. There's no food, there's no all the spare parts, the gas, the equipment. Um, and the fact that they're now uh, barreling ahead and, and we're still probably 60 miles away from our destination, who knows when we're going to see them again. So the significance here is, is all that stuff that you would normally carry on your bike and your panniers, your food and your, and your gear for the night, if, if you decided we're not going to go any further, we'll camp. That's all in that support vehicle that's barreling ahead thinking that they've got to catch up with you. Exactly. So the way that we, you know, most of our tours, uh, we've got the support vehicle and so that we can travel light. So we're basically just taking the, the, the essentials, you know, some snacks, um, you know, maybe an extra, uh, an extra layer, but it's always in the knowledge that if we need more than that, the support vehicle is right behind us. So we can stop and we can gear up and get whatever we need. Uh, but now we were flipped. So the support vehicle was, uh, at the very front of the, of the tour. And does that change things as far as the guys go and their feeling now? Because now all of a sudden you've got this this panic or, or at least that rush that you've got to catch that support vehicle. And maybe it's a time to, to push things a little more or, or at least keep going. Yeah. And, you know, I actually think this is this is the time to slow down. Um, and, I'll you know, I can talk more about it afterwards, because one of the takeaways is that when, when you are faced with a significant change in uh, in just in, in the environment, uh, or, or the, the nature of the ride, that's the best time to, to take a pause. You take a break and you reset and you brief, okay, we're in, in a new realm. This is what needs to happen from now. And I think that's, that's one of the things that didn't happen, for example. So I think the, the, the local who was, who was leading the, the group was very stressed out about, uh, now being behind the, the support vehicle. And so his inclination was to just to, to try to catch up. And so, so now we're riding, we're trying to catch up with the support vehicle. 
in what was to me and, and for, to all our guests uh, unknown uh, unknown territory. This is a decade ago, so the maps that we had for that area were not they they weren't super precise, and we had I had a GPS, but the roads on it weren't very weren't marked clearly. You know, we were kind of scratching by with the information that we had. Uh, at least I was. You know, the the locals they kind of knew the area. Um, but but what happened is we started uh, day turned into night, and now we were riding at night. And the next thing that happened was that I came up on the on the group. We're kind of keeping our distance because of the dust. Um, I came up on the group, and they're all kind of standing, uh, scratching their head, not knowing where to go because they arrived at a at a T intersection. And they're telling me, "Well, we don't we don't know where to go." I said, "What do you mean? Wasn't you know didn't wasn't somebody left uh, left here at the junction to let you to indicate where we go?" And they said, no, we just, there's nobody here. And so that's when, um, that, that's when I, I made the pause. Okay. So this is a new situation. Our, I uh, did a, you know, we did a, a quick head count showed that the, the lead, uh, the lead guide and one of the guests <clears throat> were, were ahead of the group somewhere. So you get just two riders, the lead guide, one of the guests that have went ahead and all everybody else is with, you now. Yeah. And so quick head count, you know, make sure everybody knows what the plan is. I said, okay, now I'm going to, I, you know, I, I, I assigned the, the other staff person to be the sweep. Uh, and I said, okay, everybody follow me. We're riding at night now. And so we started, we started riding. And, and like I said, my, my GPS was, was not, I, I had a GPS. So I, I, I had our final destination and I had, I had the roads that were in between the, the town. So I, 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 you know, knew fairly well where we needed to go. And so, so we're riding along and it's, and it's pitch dark and, uh, we roll into this, uh, little village and the, <laughs> it was like a scene from a, from a movie. It was, it was really, the air was really calm and there was an eerie feeling about the village and there was kind of dust hanging in the air and we're riding down this main street that's lit by street lamps and you can see like silhouettes of people kind of standing and mulling around, but it, it had this really eerie, um, uh, atmosphere to it. And the, I, my, I, I didn't, my maps or my GPS weren't detailed enough to show me, uh, where to go next. Every time we arrived at a village. So I, I needed to find somebody to ask. And now what time was this at? Oh man, I, I, I would say it's probably I don't know, 10 PM or something like that. So riding down this, um, <clears throat> down this dusty street and I see an SUV parked on the side of the road. And so, and I, I could see the silhouettes of, of, uh, people in the, in the front seat. So I, um, I pull up right next to the, to the passenger side window. I knock on the window and I signal the guy, uh, the guy to roll down his window. Cause I want to ask him, you know, how do I exit this village towards, you know, wherever we're going. And as soon as I do that, I see out of the corner of my, of my eye down the street, uh, lights turn on. There's a, there's a truck parked maybe 50 yards away and the lights come on and I see, uh, silhouettes of, uh, of, of guys with, with rifles jumping out of the back of the truck and they they start running full speed right at us with their rifles up yelling in, in Spanish. And, and I, I kind of, I do like a double take. And I, I put my hands up 
And I turn around now. Now the, the situation is that everybody, the, the entire group is kind of is parked behind me in a line or in a couple of lines in a group and with, with, uh, with helmets on motors running. And I, I put my hands up and I turn around and I yell very calmly, <laughs> put your hands up and do exactly what they say. And these kids, you know, I, I was in the military when I was a kid, but I see these kids, you know, running up to us with, with their fingers on the triggers and yelling, yelling to us in Spanish with the rifles pointed at our faces. Part of them run right up to the truck that I, the SUV that I just stopped next to, and they pull the guys out of the truck and they put them spread eagled on the, on the side of the truck and they're frisking them. And my thought is, Oh no, we're going to get caught in a crossfire here between two, like, oh, like the yeah. drug cartels and the military or something like that. And did you, and, you realize it's the, it is the military that you're, that well, you're dealing with? So it look, they look like soldiers. They look like soldiers with, you know, M16s and they're yelling at me. And, and I, and the, the, the kid who was like in front of me with his finger on the trigger pointing his, his rifle at my face is yelling at me and I could, and, but the thing that, that caught my attention is that he was sweating and he was nervous. And that was, that was the most uh, disconcerting to me is that, oh, okay, okay, just calm, calm down. And so I'm trying in my, in my broken Spanish to explain that, you know, we're, you know, like in the movie you say, we're Americans. <laughs> 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 and I'm saying we're, we're tourists. We're just passing through and they're yelling. And, and I look back at the, at the rest of the group and and these soldiers are forcefully pulling off our our guests off of their bikes and putting them spread eagle on the ground. <laughs> they're just yanking them off the bikes. The bikes yeah, are falling over. They're just yanking them off the bike. Yeah, and and of course you know the motors are still running. People are, are just kind of totally disoriented. Um, and so the whole situation is is kind of is kind of scary. And, and, you know, if, if the shooting hasn't started in, in 30 seconds, then that's probably a good sign. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to explain to this, to this, you know, kid, you know, the, who we are and people are off their bikes and on the ground. And finally I find myself uh, spread Eagle on the ground as well. <laughs> um, and, and right then our lead guide shows up and he's able to to calm the situation. So he speaks fluent Spanish and he's talking to the soldiers and, um, and, and the whole situation is, is calmed down instantly. And so we get up and, you know, we wipe the dust off of our clothes and, and says, okay, come on, we got to go. <laughs> Everybody gets on the bikes and we start riding again, right out, out of this village in the opposite direction. That <laughs> right after everybody has been held at gunpoint. Yeah. Right after that. And, uh, and then, and so there, there, there was a little pause, but you know, by the time we get out of the village, there's another, uh, like a roadblock and those same soldiers are waving at us. And it's like, we're old pals now. <laughs> so, okay, bye. See you at the next holdup. I, I can't imagine the stress of looking at that kid who's sweating and realizing that this is just going to take a, 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 just a, a little reaction of a finger yeah. that's going to set this whole thing off. Yeah. It could be anything. It could be something falling over. It could be something that somebody nearby does. Anything could set this thing off. Yeah. And, you know, from their perspective, um, and we, we learned, we learned later that, that, that they were basically, uh, on a stakeout, this, uh, this little military group and they were staking out that exact SUV that I stopped next to, to ask for, for directions. And because they had Intel that a, uh, not a drug dealer, but that, a 
uh, a gun sale deal was going down. And so, of course, the first person that stopped next to that SUV, you know, it was game on and they came running. So they thought it was going down. Now, why they assume that, you know, 10 people on, on motorcycles who are obviously foreign were, uh, were involved in any way, that's, that's beyond me. But, um, but that's what happened. Hmm. Yeah, yeah that's just so lucky the way it turned out. That could be something completely different. So you've ruined the drug bust or the, or the gun <laughs> bust for them. Yeah, we've blown their cover. Blown their cover completely, uh, messed up the things. Uh, and, and then how much more are you going to ride? Well, it, it's unclear because we're still missing a support vehicle. Uh, we, do have our, we do have our lead guide back and he knows where to go. So we're back on the, uh, on the dusty roads. And, uh, um, at, at some point we, we hook up with the support vehicle. So we ride another 10 or 15 miles and, and, and we find them. And I think what had happened is, um, at some point, the, the, uh, the local who was driving the support vehicle realized that we hadn't passed through yet. And so he stopped and waited, mm-hmm. but we were re we were reunited with the support vehicle, but we're still like, you know, 50 miles away from our, our destination. And it's, it's the middle of the night. And this is, this is the part of the story that, you know, where everything can go wrong ends. Um, and everything that co- that goes right begins. And what happened was the, the, uh, the local guide in the support vehicle says, you know, uh, it, it'll be insane to ride to Urique. Anybody who, who's been to Urique knows that just the road down to Urique is one of the most spectacular, dramatic, and scary roads. You start at about 8,000 feet and you drop down to 2,000 feet. And it's just this long switchback down the canyon, the, the side of the canyon. And he said, it'll be nuts to try to get to Urique. We're going to get there way too late. But I know of this little uh, hostel that's closer to here. And let's go, let's go see if they're open. And so we continue to ride for a few miles. And we get to this uh, locked gate. And the driver goes out and he goes, goes to the side. And then we see little lanterns coming out. And the, the short story is that they're closed for the season, but the owner opened up, got all, all of his staff running around, preparing rooms, cooking a hot meal, putting a, a nice warm fire, and basically just opened the, opened the hotel for us. Wow. And every time I think about this story, I, I think to myself, this would never happen in the United States. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you wouldn't, and, and that's, and that's the beauty of Mexico. And I think that's, that's indicative of, of the hospitality and how far they will go to, to help, um, when, when help is really needed. And so 10 minutes later, we're all standing around this roaring fire. Uh, and it's cold. I mean, we're, we're up at, at elevation, you know, six or 7,000 feet and people are cold and people are still wet from the, from the river crossings and obviously shaken by, by what's happened. And I, I remember I have this image of the whole group standing in front of the fire, kind of as silhouettes and steam rising from their clothing <laughs> as they're kind of warming, <laughs> warming their hands. And everybody like took turns, uh, telling the, the story from their perspective. And it was just fascinating to, to listen to, but we slept, we had, we had a hot meal 
and we slept in uh, in warm beds, and uh, and that was that for the night. You know, we woke up the next day and continued on our adventure. So I think um, you know these they they all knew that they were going on this adventure, uh, but I, I don't quite think they uh, this is what they they, they bargained for. <laughs> well, that's not something that can be predicted for sure. But uh, I mean, so everything went wrong, but in a way, everything went right. Even even the stuff that went wrong, because you know everyone was safe and and happy in the long run. Um, and, but there's a lot to learn here. There, there's a lot of things, um, that had happened that I'm sure that you looked at and you thought, well, uh, I'm not going to let that happen again, or, or, or maybe this is going to change the way I look at, at the, at this or, or, or the way we approach something. Can you sort of walk us through the things that you think, uh, or that sort of jumped out at you that you learned from this? Yeah, well, there, there are a lot of takeaways. I think one of the, one of the main things is that there's, we have a tendency and not necessarily even in situations like this, it could be as simple as uh, a day ride that we go, that we go on in a, an unfamiliar place. We have a tendency to, to push ourselves just because we're, we're curious and we're, you know, we're riders and we want to see what's beyond the next turn. And, and there will be situations where we, we push ourselves, uh, even though conditions might be getting a little bit worse. Or we might go down, um, you know, a hill that, um, you know, had we know that we're going to have to go back up the hill, we wouldn't. So there's a tendency to kind of push ourselves to a point where sometimes it's too late to return. And it's kind of indicative of what happened that day is that there we wanted to we had a destination. So we had we had, you know, a motel at the destination and it was part of a multi-day trip, so it's good that we make that destination every day. And so we and we were pushing ourselves uh, past these little hiccups, but we did it multiple times, all the way to a point where it was too late to turn back. Even mm-hmm. though it was considered earlier in the day, um, we 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 went way beyond that point. And you know, there's another another part of that that pressure is we've got paying guests who, you know, are there for the, for the ride and the adventure. Um, you know, even without, even without the holdup, you know, the holdup was kind of, uh, you can say, Ooh, that was the bad thing that happened. But when you look at it, well, that's, that's the condition in Mexico. It was our fault to be riding at that time of day. And, you know, thank God it was the Mexican army and not, you know, the drug cartels. Mm. When you guys um, said you didn't want to ride at night, was that the reason or, or is it the obvious reason of, of animals and accidents? It's not animals and accidents at all. It's the drug cartels. It's mm. the drug war. And it's the, it, and it's, it's just, it's just the, it's the, um, you know, it's the logical thing to do in, in Mexico is not ride at night. Um, in, in remote areas where there are drug cartels, because you could easily go off the main track and, you know, find yourself in a, I don't know, in a poppy field that's, you know, that's, uh, guarded. Um, it's just, it's just, it's unwise to do that. Mm. And so, you know, we had, uh, local guides who were kind of on the reassuring side of, we know the area will be fine, but you know, who could have predicted that? Um, so yeah, so I think that, that one point of, um, you know, we're always, you know, we're pushing ourselves a little bit, a little bit, um, over a long period of time. At some point we need to decide, okay, we don't, we don't have that buffer anymore. Now it's time to turn back or, or make a, or, or make the decision to make a change. 
that uh, you know doesn't present new uh, new dangers. See, the, the difficult thing with that is, and I, I know this from experience, is that um, it, it's not it's not usually one incident that you have to or one one uh, challenge that you have to uh, overcome that you're thinking about when you're heading back. It's a whole bunch of them. And I think you alluded to that, that the, the, you kept pushing yourself. So you go through maybe a little bit deeper river crossing than you wanted to, a little bit steeper hill. The boulders are a little bit bigger than what you're comfortable with. And each one of them in itself is, is fine. I mean, you can handle that. But when you stack them all up together and you get to the point where you're, you know, you're creeping into the afternoon and you're thinking, if we have to go back, we have to do all of this, which we already know is torturous in a way, in reverse. Mm-hmm. And that adds to that stress of, what do we do? And and I guess when, I, when I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about it's one of the stresses of having a destination that you really have to get to rather than yeah. saying, okay, this is it. This is where we're going to camp and, and call it a day right here. Yeah. And, you know, part of it is also, um, I, I think to, to some extent people think, oh man, it was, we're disappointed in ourselves because we didn't push, we didn't push through. Mm. But, you know, you can if you're doing a solo trip to the to the Arctic, you know, push through, you know, but but when you've got a group and you're responsible for the for the group safety and that's that's the number one thing. You know, every time uh, I lead a tour, my number one goal is to have everybody arrive at the destination, get off the bikes and they, they have a smile on their face and they're unhurt. That is my number one concern. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's a different dynamic and different responsibilities when you're leading tours um, is safety is number one. And the other the other side of it is that yeah, they're still there for the adventure. So it's kind of a it's kind of a delicate thing to uh, to balance at times. But I think you know that to 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 be able to make that decision midday that okay you know we're the unknown is poses a bigger challenge than even the hard uh, known, which is to turn back. So and is that what you do now? Have you changed the way you sort of assess things? Oh yeah. But I think you did anyway. I mean, even there, you you said you you had a strong opinion about Mm -hmm. what you should be doing. Yeah. Okay. So um, what what was next? What what else? Um, I think uh, uh, it's, and I I alluded to this in in part of the story. I think it's very, very important that if you get to a point where you are, like you're diving into this new realm, it's very important to pause, to take a breath stop everybody. So for example, in, in this situation, uh, what would have been, uh, appropriate to do, and we did it to some extent, but I think it's, it's a lesson for, for any time you're, you're going, you, you find yourself in a new, in a new situation. It could be, it could be after there's an injury or if you get lost or you find yourself, uh, riding at night or in bad weather, it's really important to take that break and, and reassess and, and reset, meaning, um, make sure that, you know, everybody's there, make sure everybody knows what the plan is moving forward, make sure that everybody is hydrated, make sure everybody has something in their belly, make sure everybody's warm. Are the bikes running? Well, it's just having that conversation and giving the group as a group, the reassurance that, okay, this is until this, what what we've done until now ends now this is how we're moving, we're moving forward. And I think that's really important is to do that, that mental reset, uh, moving forward. Um, and linked to that is something that's, that's very, very apparent on these tours. I think one of the greatest fears of guests who go on tours, and, and it doesn't even have to be a tour, it could be a, it could just be a group ride, 
are people who are, who are less experienced, who have maybe less, uh, whose navigational skills aren't as good, um, maybe are, are slightly slower riders, and, and join the group in order to follow. Um, the, their biggest fear is getting lost, meaning either falling behind the group uh, far enough so that they're forced or they feel the pressure to ride fast uh, or just taking a wrong turn and getting lost. And so it, it, part of that, that pause that you do is to, is to reset the rules of, you know, to, to, uh, to rehash the buddy system. You know, I'm sure everybody who rides knows about the buddy system, you know, give people the assurance that they will not get lost if they follow a couple of very, very, uh, simple principles and to give them the assurance that we have a support vehicle that is behind us, which was not the case on, on this particular day, but under normal conditions, uh, it is. And that alleviates a lot of the stress when people find, okay, I'm taken care of. These are the rules. It's very unlikely that, you know, my biggest fear will come to fruition, which I'll find myself alone in a foreign country, you know, cold, hungry, and, and lost. That was Barack Nagan. His website is nagan.com. The link is in the show notes. Now, we also have some photographs from Barack from this incident, as well as a video that's never been seen before. It's on our website in the show notes for this episode, a video um, just uh, taken after, I, I guess, different parts of the trip, but um, where they had the, uh, the run-in with the guns. Anyway, drop by the website and check it out. Coming up, what could we learn just by stopping for a washroom break? Stay with us. Well, this year there are three Overland Expo shows running. There's Overland Expo West, Mountain West, and East in that order. Overland Expo West, the first one coming up is May 15 to 17, 2020 in Flagstaff, Arizona. Overland Expo is the biggest and most comprehensive overlanding show of its kind. Uh, they've got loads of classes being taught, instructions. There's so many things going on there. You really have to go to the, the website to have a look. Everything from four-wheel drives to motorcycles and anything that you can imagine in between. Exhibitors, presentations, uh, roundtable talks, uh, equipment, you name it, it's there all at the Overland Expo event. You've got to buy your tickets online. That's overlandexpo.com is the site. There's no tickets available at the gate, so you got to do it in advance. But people come from around the world for Overland Expo. So go online now, have a look at which one you want to go to, and book your tickets for 2020. Overlandexpo.com. And make sure you throw in there anywhere you can that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. It was way back in 1976 that IMS was founded, and since then, for over 40 years now, they've been owned and operated by off-road racers and enthusiasts, building the great products that they're known for. Just take a look on any off-road racetrack. But they have a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs that fit our bikes. They're made with CAST-certified 17-4 stainless steel, certified heat-treating process. They're built in the USA. They're warranted for life. IMSproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there. You heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. My name is Rene Cormier, and I run a 
guided motorcycle company called Renadian Adventures, taking riders around the world to fun places. Rene, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you very much. You're enjoying the, the wintertime in, in, at your base, which is in British Columbia. That's right. Beautiful Summerland, British Columbia. Yeah, are you actually enjoying the winter, though? I am. You know, Summerland is uh, has a mild winter, although we've been dumped on here last night and today. But but normally it is a pleasant mixture of not too cold weather and uh, just enough snuff to just enough snow to remind us that it's uh, winter time. Nominal nominal shoveling and uh, it's it's wonderful. Well, while the snow flies, of course, you're working on bookings and and planning trips and etc. Now, um, that's this is more of your computer time, I guess. Yeah, we, you know, it used to be we only ran tours in Africa, you know, 11 years ago when we started, we we were Africa focused. And now we are around the world. So our slow season has kind of just spread out throughout the year. So now we are um, all year. So now we're working on Africa stuff, South America stuff, Mongolia stuff. It, uh, it never seems to slow down, which is a nice way to keep busy. Yeah, that's, that's the ultimate, isn't it, for, for a tourism exactly. business is to be, you know, right throughout the year rather than having a, a season where you're extremely busy and then a slow season after that. That's correct. So how long, you, you mentioned you've been doing the trips for 11 years. Is that how long you've been guiding for? 11, 11 years. 11 years. Yeah. Man. We've been guiding. So the company started immediately after I finished that around the world trip. And I was on the road for that from 2003 until 2009. And then immediately started the guiding company as a way to continue riding. And um, so we had the first tour um, 11 years ago in Africa from Cape Town to Namibia. And we, and, you know, every couple of years, we just kind of built on from that. And Part of the reason we went slowly was that I was still stuck in this mindset of being on the road, which is um, spend only cash, don't go into debt. Um, and although the, the growing might be slower, I can sleep well at night. And that's the same mantra we've been using for the company for the last 11 years now. And it's, uh, it's it, I don't know if the business people in the audience would completely agree with our method, but it works for us. So over the 11 years, you've dealt with a lot of clients that have come out. What we're talking about is dealing with um, with groups and different personalities and dealing with the group dynamics and looking at problems that have happened uh, at different times and sort of what we've learned from it. And I know you have some stories. Where, where are we going to start with this? Well, geez, you know, it's um, the the easiest one that comes to mind is in, in a group setting. So it's... It's it's funny to to ride with someone one on one and then put them into a group setting, and then an added complexity to that is a group vacation setting, where sometimes there's this element of sort of turning your brain off because you're on vacation and you 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 don't pay as much attention to the things that you normally would when you're when you're back home. And for our groups, our demographics are typically, you know, forty five to seventy five years old. If I could put it in a bell curve like that. And early on, we realized that people were stopping to pee all the time. And I, I realized that just this demographic, there's lots of peeing going on. <laughs> so that's, so one of the, that's, that's not a problem that I even thought of, but, but that's I, reality, well, isn't it? Yeah, well, either, either did we until it started happening to us a lot. And then you can imagine the confusion that comes when, when someone stops because um, we've, we've, we told all the riders, you know, keep, keep an eye on the guy behind you. Keep him in your rearview mirror. And if he stops you know, stop because he might have a flat tire. He might have um, dropped his camera. He might have done whatever. So 
when we have people stopping on their own accord to to do a little emergency pee in the woods or whatever, um, the pack just sort of disintegrates because now the chase truck stops, the people in front of the pier stops, and, and eventually I can see it in my rearview mirror that something has happened. So I pull over the front half of the group and I go back and find out what's happening and he's now coming out of the woods doing up his pants <laughs> and I think, ah, okay, I got it. One of these stops. So quite quickly we realized that that um, having people stopping on their own accord is is dangerous to the group and, and dangerous for riders. So we implemented this thing called the 100-kilometer stretch and pee. And it was our first lesson, sort of group psychology, where we just tell folks, listen, we're going to stop every 100 kilometers or so. Like, but it's normally between an hour, and hour 15, depending on how fast we're traveling. And the guides will pull over the group into somewhere scenic, we will try. And in that time, it's going to be your time to do all of the stuff that you want to do during a break. So that's, you know, going for a pee, going to the chase truck to grab water, go find your earplugs in your luggage that you forgot to put in that morning, take a layer off. And, and more importantly, um, to ask questions. You know, this was the other part of the stop set became quite important when we were telling the groups in advance what we're going to do that day. You know, and a lot of riders are like me where I've got lots of questions through the day, but come the end of the day, I've forgotten entirely what they were. Other than I know that I really wanted to know the answer to it, but I just can't remember the question now. So what the tours do now or what these 100-kilometer stretch and pee breaks do is allow the riders to ask questions, you know, especially in Africa where there's weird bird nests and weird animals and, um, you know, what was that snake that we just past. Normally they're squished on the road. Uh, so it, it, it started as a way to control people from sort of blowing up the group. And it's turned into a, a really great way to actually do all of that stuff, allow people to take breaks um, without putting them in, in the uncomfortable position of, of holding it, holding it, holding it. And then I've got to stop. I got to stop. And they run off into the bush and and crash. So that's been a, that's been a, a savior for ours for, well, a great number of years now. Um, and the other thing that it does on the group side is it helps to keep the group moving at a at a at a reasonable pace. That was one of the added bonus bonuses or benefits that we didn't quite experience or expect for it to happen, but we're quite happy that it did. Well, part of that, I guess, is um, the expectations of uh, the person in the group because. Um, there's, it's, it's sort of, um, I'm not, I, I was going to say unnerving. It's not unnerving. It's sort of, it can be aggravating for some people to, to be riding along on a trip and not know when the next break is or not know what the next destination is or not know how long you're going to be in the saddle. So, uh, that makes perfect sense. But of course the, the P thing, I, I, I just didn't expect that at all. But you, you've hit on a, you've hit on a very important part of group travel and, and maybe it's the pe the people that, um, are drawn towards group travel. But we find as a general rule, people don't like surprises, or at least they don't like not knowing what the story is. So, so at these little breaks, or even in the morning, we're going to say, okay, so the next section is 150 kilometers. It's all paved. Uh, we're going to pass this thing on the left and that thing on the right. We're going to stop in an hour 15. There will be flush toilets and a place to buy coffee. You know, without... Um, without giving them a little heads up of what's happening on the day, some riders get really wigged out about that and, uh, and, and others don't care, but we would rather tell everyone what's happening. Uh, for those who are keen on listening to it, they'll take it in, they'll soak it in. 
And for the, for the writer, writers that are not too fussed about it, then they just sort of ignore us for that point. But uh, you, you've hit it on the, the head there. It's quite an important thing to do in a group tour, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, that's what we found uh, with tourism. I, I mentioned we, we did uh, 20 years of tourism uh, adventure tours before doing this. And that, that's one thing we really found was just giving some sort of goal. Even if you didn't meet it, it was something to do because in this case, um, you know, you're in the wilderness. But the one thing I, I was going to mention with that is I think that what, what we found was anytime that the uh, the physical or mental stress is is it there and and starts to rise? That's the real important time for people to know what the plan is, at least a rough idea of what the plan is. Because when you're stressed, for instance, you know your people riding along having to pee, um, they're stressed about that and they have no idea how long they're going to wait. Obviously, they're just going to figure, well, I, I have to stop now. Whereas you've you know you've you've cured it and probably added stuff to it by doing this hundred k stretch and pee. Yeah, and and that's exactly it. So people can say, you know, eighty kilometers in, man, I got to pee. And they know, like sometime in the next 20 kilometers or so, the group is going to pull over and they'll have a chance to take a break. So it's important for them to know because we don't do a a detailed kilometer by kilometer um, breakdown or itinerary for the riders that morning. That's that's a bit too hectic. Uh, But with this little bit of information, they seem to be able to control themselves. Now, you you had an equipment story, a boot story. A boot story. So we have a lot of um, people coming over from a cruiser side to ride with us. And they look at our equipment as a bit uh, like a Martian. You look at a Martian with with all that, the Kevlar and the Cordura and the Gore-Tex and the padding. And it all seems a bit much. And this last trip in South America, a month ago or so, we had a rider from from the U.S. who was inquiring on what kind of gear to bring, and I and we got onto this topic of boots, and I'm a big fan of proper boots, um, and I don't necessarily mean big, tall, plastic motocross boots, but I certainly mean tall, up to almost the knee, heavy leather with ankle protection, um, and I'm I ride with the CD Discovery, the adventure boot. And I'm on my third pair of those. And I still have the other two pairs that I use as spares um, in the event I'm going through mud or through water, uh, rainy days. And so I was talking to this guy from the U.S. And I says, just whatever you do, just make sure that you buy a good pair of boots. Um, We don't want hiking boots. We don't want fashionable boots or um, fashion shoes or road shoes. Buy boots. I mean, you think about your feet hanging down where they do all day. And that South America trip is 5,000 kilometers long and 2,000 is gravel. And, and it's not all happy gravel. And so we were, we're riding um, and he hits this massive dust hole that looks flat from two feet away. But once you get into it, it kind of swallows you up. And he ended up with a bike on his leg, on his ankle. Yeah, what what kind of boots do you have? He had his proper big adventure boots on that he had bought which he told me at dinner that night, he went out and bought because of our conversation. And I had forgotten that conversation. And I was so glad that, A, I, rem- I, remind, I remember to tell him to, to buy proper boots and B, that he actually listened to that particular bit of advice and went and, and, and got them. You know, So you, you never know how those little spills are going to turn out, especially when a big motorcycle lands on your, on your ankle. So go back to you know, what you're saying. He went into the, the dust hole. Went into the dust hole, um, high side of the bike, bike ended up on top of him and sort of pinned underneath the motorcycle, pinned, the, the motorcycle pinned his uh, foot to the ground. So we stopped and lifted the bike up and poof, he stands up, 
and laughs it off and shakes the dirt off and heads off riding again. But he wouldn't have been able to do that if he was on his, um, you know, a, a hiking boot, for example, would have been much more uh, susceptible to injury there. Mm. So it fo- he followed your advice and, and it paid off. But I guess what you were saying is that, that original conversation, I'm assuming that he's wondering why he could possibly need these boots. Right. And they're expensive. You know, they're 300 bucks, 400 bucks, sometimes $500 for, for these good proper boots. But um, I, I try to convince them that if you put it into uh, a ratio of percentage of what they're spending on, on, this, on a big 22-day motorcycle trip, um, the cost of boots and proper gear is really not that much. And also, the other thing to take into consideration here is that the cost of not having a proper boot could have been the cost of the rest of the trip. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's your vacation Absolutely. gone. Absolutely, not not only the cost of the rest of the trip, the cost of uh, the trip to the to 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 the to the hospital for mm-hmm. the cast, um, getting yourself home with with medical evacuation, or stuck in the chase vehicle for the rest of the trip. Yeah, it's the the cost of um, not having protective gear is um, is really really big. And it's an important one to consider. And we wish people, and I think too, that by the time I I think the guides have a really good chance of convincing that to people, um, even from the standpoint of, listen, you're you're spending X amount of money on a, let's call it $15,000 on a, on a 22 day trip. Um, this is a, this is a, a special thing to do. And, and, and we know it's important for them because they're coming on the trip. But surely they can see the value in having the protective gear that are going to allow them to ride like this for, for years and years to come. And l- luckily, the stuff that, that we encourage people to buy is well-made and will last for years if it's taken care of properly. So now, I think did, we can get that message through. What did you learn from, from that? Is there something you learned? Is something you changed or just reaffirm what you're already doing? Yeah, I actually went back into our pre-notes that we send people and I bolded. The, the words have always been in there about what to wear on protective gear, but I went back and I put in bold, good boots are required. Uh, same with full face helmets. You know, we get people coming from a, like a, like a, a motorcycle cop helmet or a beanie type of stuff. And we're saying, sorry guys, you just need, you just need a full face helmet. Um, especially for rides like South America or some of the gravel roads in Africa. Um, you get one of those dingers off the nose, uh, a rock from a passing car or a motorcycle passing you it is not a pleasant experience. And, uh, Helmets are just I'm not sure why people don't invest wisely in helmets. Um, I think they're pretty critical, especially especially for the type of riding that we do. Now, what, what do you do if somebody shows up and they don't have the gear that you told them to do, and particularly the boots? Let's say somebody shows up and they've got you know normal running shoes or a low cut uh, hiking boot or something. We try and find them some stuff. We try and convince them that uh, listen, you have to just wear you just have to wear the stuff. You need to wear, wear the protective gear, otherwise you can't ride. And do you actually flat out like not take them if they don't, won't wear the proper gear? It hasn't happened yet, but that would be the case, yeah. Mm, yeah, and you'd be willing yeah. to do that. You'd be willing to say, "I'm sorry, I can't take you." Yeah, it's it's we and we try and we try and phrase it in the sense that if something happens to to them, it's it's not only them they're impacting. If if it was a private tour with with one rider under equipped with a guide, that's a different story. But we're traveling we're traveling in a group, and one one person's trip to the hospital impacts the entire group. Um, not only from the amount of resources that are left over f- to deal with the group because the guides and the, dr- and, the, and the chase truck guys are now dealing with the guys gone to the hospital, but it also sours the entire group. No one wants to be in a part of a group that has um, people injured. Um, 
especially ones that are completely preventable. Mm, that's what I was going to say. Something is something that's unnecessary and can completely change the trip. Um, that's obviously, correct. so there's a certain responsibility as you joining a group to the group. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and um, and that goes for you know group group dynamics is very peculiar, and um, sometimes that in, involves uh, biting your tongue at dinner. Uh, and, but I, I do think that's also one of the reasons why motorcycle travel is so lovely because we have this time off in the day in our helmets where we don't have to speak to one another. You know, we're not, we're not hooked up by communication devices between the group that the guide and the support truck is, but not the guide and any of the riders. So we've got this lovely helmet time alone in the, in the day. And come dinner time, we can have a great conversation about what did you see that day and how is the bike riding and everything. And sometimes we stop at these fuel stations where the where the bus buses stop, the overland trucks stop. And every time there there are guys coming over to um, over to the motorcycles and chat about oh, I've got this bike at home or I've taken that one to this cool place and and you can see how much they are how much they would much rather be on the motorcycle traveling to see the places that they are rather than being in the bus. And I can just imagine that, you know, in the bus, you are, you're there talking to people all day. I would imagine you run out of stuff to talk about, wouldn't you? Mm, yeah. Like I would, being I would on a think plane. so. Like <laughs> being on a plane. Where you yeah. do not want that person that sits beside you <laughs> to start up a conversation. <laughs> you, you had another story? I do have another story. Yeah. And it actually um, is sort of part and parcel with the 100 kilometer stretch and pee. And, and and it again touches on trying to trying to deliver deliver individual attention in a group setting, and it seems to be one of these unwritten rules of physics that a group of motorcyclists once stopped cannot get going again within fifteen or twenty minutes. It seems impossible <laughs> against the, the laws of nature. Because everybody there's always somebody or or a few people have something to do. They've got to pull their glasses off, which means taking their helmet off again or something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's that and there's uh, there's always one in the group. And so we try and we try and preload it at the beginning of the trip saying, listen, when when we stop, it's it's your responsibility to approach the stops rationally, you know, so, so do the toilet and your drinking water and all of that stuff first, rather than going to pet the, the stray dog on the, on the far side of the parking lot. Uh, because when we're going to get ready to go and then you're saying, ah, I, well, I need more time and I need to drink water and I need to do all that stuff. So <clears throat> af after a tour of continually talking to the one person about, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. We're leaving, we're leaving. We, we've changed tax on that. And now what we do is we have this thing called the two-minute bell. And the guide will hold up two fingers and you'll just yell, two minutes. And what has been explained to them is two minutes, the two-minute bell is the time when you should be now heading back to the bike and get, getting your earplugs in and getting your gloves on and, and doing up zippers and stuff. Um, everything should be done by that point, the toilet break, the water, the drinking of the water, the cleaning your visor, all of that stuff. But the, the really neat thing about the two minute bell is that the guide can actually say it to a few people in his immediate surroundings. And then they turn around and they hang up, they hold up two fingers and start yelling to the rest of the group. Hey, two minute bell, two minute bell. So it, it, um, it takes away the guides always harping on the slow guy because now it's the group that is now uh, enforcing the two-minute bell rule. 
And there, and then we'll all be sitting on the bikes, engines running, waiting for that last person. And so it's a, it's a nice amount of, uh, of peer pressure. I suppose you could say peer pressure in a positive way to keep the, the, the group running and on time. And that's for us, has worked very well um, across all groups. Mm, I, I like that. Now, what I'm, I'm getting from this, your stories is it's all about efficiency. I mean, you, what you've done is you've learned ways to keep your group moving more efficiently. Get the, get, I guess get more out of your trip. Yes. Uh, lunch is another one. We'll, we very rarely spend a lunch in, uh, in a restaurant because that's a huge time sucker upper. So we will prefer to do lunches in a scenic area and we'll, we'll provide the lunch for them. We'll make a lunch or we'll do a build a sandwich kind of uh, lunch. Um, I think it's more tasty. People can get exactly what they want, but keeping that group mo- moving is a, is a small miracle in itself, but it, but it's important. We stay at some pretty fancy lodges. I mean, certainly fancier than I would normally stay at by myself if I was traveling with friends and it, they deserve to be enjoyed by getting there at a, at a reasonable time, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon or so. Um, it does nobody any good if we pull into a lodge at six thirty, sun's going down, dinner's at seven. You don't have a chance to look around or enjoy the room or enjoy the bar or the, the, the leisure areas. So uh, keeping the groups moving is of paramount importance, especially in Africa, where we're never really sure, or South America, actually, you're never really sure what's going to happen motorcycle-wise with um, any mechanicals or, and if and if there's a border crossing involved, then it's sort of uh, also, um, you, you double down on efficiency on that one, because those are also, um, you're never really sure how they're going to impact your day or how much time they're going to suck up. And anybody's ridden with even an unorganized group, you find that the exact same things. It's very difficult to get the group moving again. Stopping, you get one person that stopped for one thing. Next, you know, a helmet comes off, and then there's people standing beside their bikes, and or people get spread out, and they're, and they're trying to rush to connect to with each other again, worried about getting lost. That whole thing of of keeping the group moving in an efficient manner that's a big part of of guiding. <laughs> Yeah. And it's, it's, um, there's so many, there's so many corollaries that, um, that I have from the guiding world, but we have now a four-year-old boy and a seven-year-old boy. And I use the exact same techniques on, on the boys as I do with the groups. (laughs) So that's good. So the, so the two minute bell, we use that all the time here. Um, and of course the hundred kilometer stretch and pee that goes with, with, uh, four and seven-year-olds as well as 40 and 70-year-olds as well. The, the, the the principle remains the same. Yeah, well, we start but, out like that and then we end up like that again, don't we? <laughs> yes, it's, we're coming full circle. <laughs> you know, Renee, many years ago when, when we first had you on the show, we talked about your, your book that, that you'd written, um, which is... At the University of Gravel Roads. The University of Gravel Roads. And I remember you saying about your, your possessions. At that time, you had very few possessions. As a matter of fact, I, I believe what you said was you guys had what would fit in a suitcase. And if you got something new, the, the ideal was if you got something new, something else had to come out and go out of the suitcase. How, how are you doing with stuff now at this point? Yeah, well, we, we, we now have a house. So three years ago, we actually bought a house. Um, the, the previous, um, after finishing that tour, we were eight years in a home sitting and renting and, um, some of that was South Africa, some of that was Edmonton, some of that was in BC. Um, so the amount of stuff has been slowly collecting. Um, so I cannot say that um, we, we were the same. Uh, but I look back upon those days fondly. That's when we were traveling with Jacques, the older one. The younger one still wasn't born yet, but he had a suitcase of toys. And if, if he wanted a new one, he had to pick one to, to leave behind. Um, 
And now we are a bit more liberal with what they're able to hang on to. So I, I'm afraid we're not quite as... You're not the minimalist anymore. No, the problem is we have a bit of space. And like uh, snakes that grow to the size of their cage or like overland travelers that uh, <laughs> buy a big pannier, it's going to be filled. <laughs> just despite their best intentions to leave it half full, just in case they find this cool mask or a fresh loaf of bread. Nope, that thing will be full. Two um, very good examples, both the snake and the traveler. <laughs> Renee, I appreciate you taking the time from your computer and, uh, and sitting and chatting with me. Until next time. It's been a delight. Thanks for having me. That was Rene Cormier from Renadian Adventures. You can find out more about him and what he does at renadian.com. And that link will be in the show notes as always. Stay with us. Coming up, we're going to talk about group dynamics and get a little information on choosing a potential partner for your next adventure. I think most people will agree, no matter how good your riding skills are, there's always more to learn. But learning from a skilled instructor, well, that really cuts down the learning curve. And Moto Discovery has a, a unique training system they call uh, that they've developed called Immersion Training. They run this in Moab, which is a fantastic place to do it. And the deal with it is you learn the skills, much like you would at any training company, but then you head off on a real adventure for six days, six nights with your instructors. So you put what you've learned into action. And we all know the value of applying what you've learned immediately afterwards. As a matter of fact, I've read research that shows that, um, that proves that if you use what you've learned right away, the retention is much higher than if you walk away and do something else. That's the whole point of this immersion training that Moto Discovery does. By the way, Moto Discovery has been in business for over 40 years, I think. So they've been around a long time. They know what they're doing. Have a look at what they've got, motodiscovery.com. And, and when you're dealing with them, or even if you're inquiring, mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's motodiscovery.com. My name is Dan Collins. I live in Hertfordshire, which is just north of London and just south of Cambridge in England. I um, discovered Adventure Rider Radio just over a year ago and have found it an incredibly useful source of, uh, of, of wisdom, of entertainment um, and inspiration, really. We talk about facilitating adventurous conversations, which is exactly what you do. And I think that's really what we try to do is we try to take people out of their normal business environment and give them some sense of adventure. They may just be in a hotel away from the office, but sometimes they're in a more challenging environment. But the conversations they have, if they're effective, are because they are quite stretching and quite challenging and they really have to think about the way they relate to one another and where they want their business to go and so on. So there's a, a loose connection. Dan, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real privilege to be be part of the show. I think a lot of people will recognize what you do uh, under the heading of team building. Yeah, I think it's one of many, many forms of team building. That's right. Right. And how long have you been doing it for? Well, I started the business way back in the early 90s, um, although then it wasn't 
I didn't start it with the intention of, of doing exactly what we do now. Um, I started out by um, teaming up with a, a farming friend and we had, there are some spare land on his farm, some um, tracks and some woodland that wasn't being used for farming. And we created a, a network of tracks there that people could come and bring their own four-wheel drive vehicle to, to drive around. Um, in the UK, particularly in this part of the UK, there's very little um, land that people can access without the owner's permission. And typically owners don't want to give permission. So we really created the first place people could come and pay a small fee and then have the day driving off-road and adventuring. Um, so that was my first venture into adventure. Um, and very quickly, within months, people said, well, can we bring our staff, can we bring our clients and can we make it a group activity? And that's where the um, the team building element began really initially around vehicles. And then it's gone into all sorts of other activities and uh, discussions from there. And and you sort of stumbled across adventure motorcycling by attending a film festival. Yeah, so um, I, um, I, 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 yeah, you know, for some time I've been interested in you know the the books have been written about adventure travel and and films and the adventure travel film festival that Austin Vince runs takes place quite near where I live and so I went there and noticed that Honda was sponsoring it and uh, got to go out on one of their bikes on an Africa Twin and uh, thought this is a lot of fun. Um, I had passed my test years previously, but my wife had. She pretty much in one sentence said, congratulations on passing a test and you're not having a motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the last conversation we had about it about 20 years ago. Um, and then this year, or, um, very early this year, I, um, I raised the subject again, having had this experience with Honda last summer. And she agreed and she allowed me to go and buy a, a motorcycle. And, uh, and now I have uh, an Africa to win. Now, part of what you're doing is is you're teaching people to uh, to come out and, and I guess build a bit of a team, getting people to work together as a group rather than just a group of individuals. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I think um, on one hand, I've got very little experience of adventure riding in groups, um, but the, the, the group dynamics of a group of people, whether they're on a yacht crossing the sea or whether they're working in a business or whether they're on an adventure riding trip, the dynamics are probably quite similar. So I th hopefully there are some things that we can learn from my experience. And of course, you've led groups as well yourself. So I think between us, we've got some um, insight, I hope. Um, and I really, it's that, uh, you know, riding in groups is a lot of fun um, for most people. Some people prefer to ride solo and that's actually, that's okay. We're wired differently and some of us prefer to be alone and others prefer to be in groups. Um, but I think the, the important thing is that finding a time to travel is, is is tough for most of us and certainly the time, the money, and you know, there's a significant investment in taking a trip. And if relationships fall down during that trip, then it can really spoil it. And you can be in the most beautiful countryside on amazing machines, um, but if the relationships are fraught and people are having a miserable time inside their helmets, then the, the trip is really spoiled and that shouldn't happen. So I'm hoping that through this conversation we can share a few tips that mean that when people do take a trip with friends or with people even they haven't met, they're able to have a, a really positive experience. And I think it's something that's easy to miss when you're doing your planning. We often think about gear and we think about getting our bike ready and, and doing different things like that. Maybe if you're doing border crossings, you're, you're going to worry about visas or things like that. And, and the, the thought process of the people you're traveling with doesn't really come into mind yet. It's going to play very large um, as you head out and, and start on your adventure. And you mentioned that my experience, um, I spent many years guiding 
um, wilderness trips where you're dealing in, in a commercial uh, setting and where you're dealing with all types of personalities that come out. And it was interesting doing that because I learned a lot about people and about groups and, and um, how groups congeal or and how they can be fractured um, just through travel, just through, you know, doing something together. Uh, and in some cases where people are almost forced to be in, in, in my cases, um, sometimes a spouse would book a trip for themselves and, and, uh, their partner and show up with one person really not wanting to be there. <laughs> now, hopefully that's not the case with the, as far as adventure motorcycling goes. Um, but let's jump into this. So we've sort of broken it down. I think first we're going to tackle the one-on-one. So in other words, if you're going to set up a, a trip to ride with a buddy, or I have seen people and people do it fairly regularly, advertise for another person going where they want to go. Because let's face it, there's a lot of advantages of traveling with a, another rider. If you have an accident, there's somebody there to help you. If you have a breakdown, there's somebody to, someone there to help you. There, there's a lot of pluses with it. There's some downsides too, of course. You can tend to isolate yourself themselves from uh, the places that you're, the people that you're going through uh, and the places that you're going through by communicating with each other only. But there's a lot of advantages. So let's look at that, the one-on-one. First of all, if you're going to travel with someone, if you're planning to go somewhere with another person, whether it's your friend or whether you're advertising on a Facebook group or a forum for a travel buddy, how are you supposed to tell if you're the least bit compatible? I think it's, um, I think there are two aspects to it. One is that I don't know that we. you have to know the other person really well. I think the instinctive reaction is, if I'm going to take a trip with somebody, I need to know them really well before I go. And I'm not sure that's the case. I think sometimes getting to know the other person can be a really fruitful part of the journey. So I've heard it said by people who have have made expeditions in this sort that you know it, they had better expeditions with people they didn't know so well at the start than they have with people they knew really well and i think you know we've heard it said it's been mentioned certainly on a rule of you know couples that travel as a, a married couple and and come back as a as a separated couple <laughs> um, um but similarly there are other couples that it works really well for so i think sometimes if we t- we know people too well that adds another level of of pressure perhaps we um we let our guard down and we, we're not quite as courteous to one another if we know somebody really well, uh, you know, so that would be a, probably an immediate family member uh, or a spouse. Um, not to say don't do that, but just be aware that there's a, there are risks with people who know each other really well alongside um, opportunities, people who barely know each other at all. What is probably most important, though, and the second aspect of this is how well we know ourselves. And if we know ourselves well and we know our likes, our dislikes, um, our needs, we're probably best, we're then able to think, well, if, who should I travel with? Because if I'm somebody that um, doesn't like to party at night, I probably don't want to go traveling with somebody who's going to be partying not, at, late at night and waking up really late in the morning. And even something about things like sleep patterns, you know, there are some of us are larks, we like to get up early, some of us are owls, we like to stay up late. Um, and having that, those sorts of things, and knowing that about ourselves, we can then ask questions of the other person without doing any kind of psychological assessment, just, just conversational questions where you can find out whether this is a person that we're likely to be compatible with. And I think also acknowledging that we're not likely to find the perfect match. You know, we could, just like dating, you could spend your whole life looking for the perfect match. And in reality, the best relationships often have a, elements of difference. And it's that give and take that makes a relationship work. And whether it's a marriage or a long-term motorbike trip, I think um, maybe some of the same truths apply. Well, how do you figure out what you said, you know, you go through a regular or just a, a conversation with a person. How do you figure out what you're going to ask? Do you make a list of things you're going to talk about? <laughs> you mentioned to your party. I hadn't thought about that before. I was thinking more of goals and speed and things like that, that you and I have discussed before. Um, 
but what do you do? Make a list of, of things that your are your priorities? I think probably, yeah, thinking what are, what's important to me, um, what will I, it's, a, it's almost like a negotiation. They, they say, don't they, if we're going to a negotiation, you should write down all the things you can't concede on, the things you can concede on. And then over to the, during the course of negotiation, you you maybe give up the things that you, you're willing to concede on, but you don't give out give up on the things that you, you absolutely hold dear. Um, and I guess it's worth doing something like that, a little bit of a list, um, or at least giving it some serious thought. I think with any conversation or any, you know, it, it, that's, that's important like this, just spending some time thinking about it, planning beforehand is, is good. Um, and quite often we'll know the answer anyway. If we spend a bit of time with somebody, we'll probably get a sense of who they are and uh, and and we won't even need to ask the question. We'll we'll know the answer. But if we don't don't know the if we don't know, then yeah, coming up with a question that yeah, just like you know, are you a lark or an owl? You know, just that thing about when when do people how do people like to sleep and do they sleep in or, or wake go to bed late? That's a useful um, an, e- an easy I think non threatening conversation to ask. Mm, yeah, I, I think um, obviously you have to be going the same place and, and have the same uh, sort of itinerary. But yeah, I, I think a big part of it would be figuring out your travel speed and the way you like to travel. If one person, for instance, wants to stay in hotels, that's going to be a problem for another person who has no interest in staying in hotels and wants to camp. So so there is some some um, sort of, I guess, listing or, or like you say, thought process you'd have to go through of those basic things, travel speed, idea for the trip. Um, and it can even be for if you arrive, if you like to arrive in a city and check out um, architecture, I, I don't know, maybe the nightlife. That's something you sort of want to work out in advance. Like, like if you were going to right now, Dan, you're, you're going to you advertise and you have this person respond to you. Are, are you going to want to do a shakedown trip with them? Or are you going to want to sit down with, with a coffee or a tea or something with them? How will you handle that? I think a shakedown trip is a really good idea. I think that um, just in the same way, it, it shows us what luggage we don't need on our bike. It shows us what baggage we don't need in our companion, perhaps. <laughs> and, um, so that's probably the best way. Um, now, you're going to probably need to have a, at least a conversation on the phone before doing that. But that, that, you know, just the process of planning for a shakedown trip, you know, um, you know, I did a trip a week or so ago and we made a joint list on and we shared it where we, you know, we just ensured that we didn't carry two first aid kits and two toolkits. You know, simple things like that, which just took a bit of preparation beforehand and was sharing things back and forth on email. Um, and then, yeah, we, on some very practical levels, we got on and we knew each other well enough to know that that our style of riding and camping and so on was sufficiently similar that we, we got on in that sense. But as you say, things like speed, distance traveled, even compatibility of bikes is is quite important to to, to understand it doesn't mean to say you have to have compatible bikes but it just means if you've got somebody who's on a a post bike and you've got somebody else on a 1200 then you know the guy on the 1200 is going to have to be patient or, or they're going to have to go ahead and sort out the camp and and organize the trip in such a way that their their higher speed gives advantage to the group you mentioned sharing gear because i i think one thing that you'd want to be cautious with if you're sharing gear is that you're able, because I, I think the big out here with going with someone is if it really didn't work out, you'd want to be able to have it, uh, at least an option to be, you know, okay, we're going to split and go on our own. And you want to make sure that you you can handle the gear or tools thing. Tools might be risky, um, but I mean, gear can certainly be replaced, uh, you know, a tent or whatever the case is. But um, I think you'd want to prepare for that. Yeah, I'm preparing for you know, if, if a, you have to have a good relationship to do this but, or have a third person in the mix who may be not coming on the trip, but is a, 
um, a trusted you know, person just to maybe even have a conversation about, well, what if it doesn't work? How will we deal with that? Um, and I, when I'm advising business partnerships, I, you know, they're, they're about to go through a serious period of growth and under some pressure. We try and have that conversation around, well, what do you both want out of this? And, you know, when one person has reached their goal and the other person wants to strive on for even more growth, how are you going to part company? And and if that conversation can be had in advance, then it's no longer it doesn't become the elephant in the room when it when the time comes to, to have the conversation. It, it can happen reasonably easily. And there may be even a place for that about, you know, do we know how we'll uh, um, resolve those kind of differences? Um, that's a tricky one to have. But I think it would be a great goal to have a level of relationship whereby you can have that conversation before you even set out. I guess really the, the more work that you put into this, um, maybe that's the wrong way to say it because you wouldn't want to put too much into this, but if you don't do your due diligence on this, you could end up finding yourself um, with something that just doesn't work out and that, that can totally change your travel plans. Yeah. yeah, I think so. And I think very easily, you know, I think when you're spending 24 seven, you know, 24 hours a day with somebody and you're probably hungry at times and tired at times, you know, we're, we're not at our best when we're, we're low on energy um, and mood swings. Uh, I think, yeah, we, we put relationally, we're putting ourselves into an extremely testing environment. And it's foolish to do that without, as you say, doing some due diligence, due diligence or some maintenance first. We wouldn't take a bike that we hadn't maintained on a long trip. And we probably shouldn't take a relationship that's not finely tuned on a, a long trip either. I'd, I'd like to talk uh, for a minute about leading a group and not in a professional sense, because those people already have their, um, their craft, you know, finally honed, you would hope, um, before they're leading commercial groups. But just for the average person, like, like you know, you might decide to take uh, a, a group of friends out for a ride. You might uh, post something on a, a forum or Facebook or something like we talked about before and decide that you want to, you want to get together, get together with people and organize the group. I sort of want to discuss some of those inherent responsibilities that go along with that position, because I think this is some of the problem that people run into with group travel is you, you sort of sign up to, to go with a group of people and the um, the group hasn't been taken that seriously, I guess, right from the top. The organizer hasn't taken it in, in one, let's just let's say in this example, the organizer hasn't taken the time to research it really well. They haven't worried about fuel stops. They haven't worried about distance traveled, all those sorts of things. And people start finding themselves in trouble. Um, what do you think as, as, as far as a, a person about to do that? Do, do you think that you should be considering it like sort of from a, from a leader's perspective before you decide to post something out and say, I'm going for rides. Anybody want to come with me? What's your thought on that? I think if you, if you're really serious about taking the leadership position and, and being the leader, um, come what may, and therefore taking most of the responsibility for the group and for the route and, and so on, then, um, that's a really big undertaking. And you know, if you're just going with a few mates, then maybe you know the, the leader role can rotate to some degree. So one person might lead navigation, somebody else might lead um, camping stops and setting up camp and how we do that. Somebody else might lead food. So the, there are different roles in a team anyway. And we might look at those in a moment. But the you know, the level of leadership is, I think, varies from group to group. So certainly somebody saying, pay me some money or you know sign up and I'm leading the tour then that carries a huge amount of weight and that really does mean that you know this is the person that's got to think about contingency throughout you know what if what if what if what if you know, a bike breaks down or or you know there's a problem with the border or visas you know they have to cover all of that and really have done that thinking in advance 
So when it comes to, you know, being a leader, whether you're, um, well, I mean, I, we're really talking unorganized uh, leaders here. You take on a lot of inherent responsibilities. Like I said before, one of those is safety. Absolutely. And it's, it, it is the, it should be the primary um, responsibility of, of any group. You know, as soon as we get on our bikes, really, whether on our own or in a group, you know, our safety is, is critical on, in any vehicle on the road. You know, the road is the most dangerous place we can spend time, I think, in the 21st century. Um, and so, yeah, we don't want to spoil it by um, having unnecessary risk. And so the leader's role is to keep people safe and they need to do that by understanding the dynamics of riding in groups and the, the concertina effect that the bikes at the back will end up having to ride faster in short bursts to keep up with the group. Um, and so you actually want your best riders at the back uh, rather than your least confident riders at the back because it's it's doubling the challenge for least confidence riders to, to try and keep up with the group. Um, okay, hang on. Thing- That's counterintuitive, I'm sure, to a lot of people's thought process to saying, no, no, no. If I join the group and I don't feel comfortable, I want to go to the back because I don't want to feel like I'm being pressured. Yeah, and and it's a strange dynamic that, but but study it and see. I I discovered this. Um, I was involved in a business where we had um, we took people on on trails on ATVs or quad bikes, and they're fairly sh- short trails. In a couple of hours, people do about fifteen miles. But often they'd never ridden ATVs before. They'd come along. We'd teach them how to ride the bikes, and then they go off a little convoy type tour. Um, and of course, the most enthusiastic riders would go right behind the leader um, and the least confident riders would go to the back. And then we would have one of our guides right at the back. Um, and the guys that work for us said, well, you know, I'd rather not lead. I'd rather be at the back because it's the most exciting place to ride. You know, we really have to work hard to keep up, as, of course, did the least confident riders that were sort of just you know, towards the end of the group. And there's this strange concertina effect where you know, the the back of the line has to go ride faster, but only for short bursts to keep up with the, the main group. And it's, uh, there's a physician or a physics specialist at least could, could explain this better than me, but um, I, I'm absolutely convinced that seeing it happen over and over again, and that there's a strange effect whereby the, the riders at the back do need to ride harder and faster than the ones at the front. Well, it's kind of like if you think of a freight train, when a freight train pulls away, there's a little bit of clearance in each of the cars. So that's why they start off so slow when they pull up all the slack, because if they were to take off, by the time that last car got the pull from all the little clearance between all the cars, it would it would rip it right off. Mm-hmm. So you have to take up all the slack and get the whole thing moving at once. And, and that's what I see with groups is that you'll see that front rider, they'll take off and the next person goes, oh, okay, I'm going to take off. And then there's that slight delay. And pretty soon you've got people racing to try and catch up to the, the rider in front. You see it a lot with groups, even on the street. Yeah, absolutely. And uh uh, yeah, you, you, you've explained it perfectly there. And I think on the street, it matters even more because people may make assumptions that somebody has seen that the junction is clear because they've gone past it. And in actual fact, it's not. Um, and it was safe for the first guy to go past it, but it's not safe for the second. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I rode last week with a guy who's um, a, a very highly qualified police um, driver. And you know, and it was great because we were you know able to look out for each other and, and be another set of eyes for one another. But even then, you know, we had to basically have a, an unwritten agreement that we ride our own ride. We don't, we don't make any assumptions based on what the other person has said is okay or not okay. And I think that's the danger is that sometimes people communicate incorrectly and say, yeah, it's safe. And who, you know, it's, 
the only person we decide whether it's safe is, uh, is ourselves. We have to make that decision. Um, so that's just one element of safety um, down to, you know, packing the right first aid kit, having that available, ensuring that you know how to use the first aid kit um, and you've got comms that work in wherever you're riding. You're not getting into a situation without appropriate communication. Um, you know, the leader must take that responsibility. And so, you know, I think it's very tempting to think, well, I've got a, you know, a bit of experience. I know some routes. I'll, I'll start charging people to take gu- on guided tours. Um, well, that's, yeah, uh, probably a foolish approach. Yeah, that's a whole other, <laughs> as soon as you start doing that, you're getting into insurance um, and you just got so many, so many issues. I, I don't think, uh, if you haven't done it before, if you haven't guided tours, it, it's difficult to understand how much responsibility there is there and how much planning and forethought and also um, ability to react to changes because things always change, in particular when you get into uh, um, uh, off-site settings. In other words, if you're on a, if you're on a closed-in track or something, that's one thing if you're in a closed in area, but if you're off in the real world riding around somewhere, things change and things happen and it's, it's difficult to deal with. So yeah, that's, um, that's best left to the pros. Absolutely. Well, Dan, I, I know we could go on and get very, very deep into this, but, but I think we've covered some, some interesting stuff here that hopefully will help people when they're traveling with other people, um, whether they know them or not. Dan, thank you very much for taking the time. Well, thank you very much, Jim. And I just want to thank you and Elizabeth for producing the show. I've got so much fun out of it and entertainment and knowledge. And I know you say every week that this is a a combination of listen support and advertising. And I'm really grateful that you don't just sell out to advertisers and have them determine the content, that you keep the content really wide and varied. And I've, you know, being a supporter of the show, and I'd really want to encourage others to do that. You know, I wouldn't want to go into a, mag- a news agent and read a magazine cover to cover every week, every month, and then never pay for a subscription. You know, I'm happy to pay the twenty five pounds a year to subscribe to a magazine, and uh, I hope people listening to the show will will do the same because it's a, a phenomenal thing you produce, and uh, we should really support it. Dan Collins from Fresh Tracks from his office in the UK and near London. Uh, You can find out more about Dan and what he does at freshtracks.co.uk. want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, 
that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. Now, don't forget in this episode, uh, in, in the show notes for this episode, we've got a video there from Barack um, about the uh, the incident that he had there, along with a bunch of photos. And there's a bunch of photos in there to see and, and some other information. Drop by the website, look at the show notes for this one, and if you're feeling up to it, to put a comment there at the bottom of the page. Anyway, thank you very much for listening to the show, and uh, thank you to our producer Elizabeth Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. And um, hey, if you're if you're not doing it already, I just want to throw it out there that we need your support. It is built on a model of advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. Again, at the website, you just have to click on support. We'd really appreciate it. My name is Jim Martin. Talk to you next week. This is Scooter Chance Scotty uh, coming to you from Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs> <laughs>